I was a big fan of the TV show Mythbusters. This show had a cast of special effects artists as well as engineers who would come together to either prove or debunk certain concepts that were held as truths. In other words, they were Mythbusters. Well, that's what we're going to do in this episode. Because we've learned a lot about the potential pathophysiology of a very serious pregnancy complication, preeclampsia. Now, I learned a couple of things, as I'm sure you may have, that are now starting to be debunked and proven as myths. So in this episode, which is really a two-part series, but in this first part, we're going to debunk some of the widely held conceptions about the relationships or risk factors or pathophysiology of preeclampsia. Ready? So let's get into Mythbusters, the preeclampsia episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, podcast family, the reference for this podcast is an article that's not even out yet, but it will be out in the American Journal of OBGYN's Expert Review. The title is The Placenta and Preeclampsia. Is it the villain or the victim. You know, for a long time, we've blamed the placenta on preeclampsia's development, right? I mean, the conventionally accepted hypothesis, right, for the etiology of preeclampsia considered extravillous trophoblast remodeling of the uterine spiral arteries as the essential factor here for altering the blood flow to the placenta. In other words, it was the placenta's fault. Now, let's re-say that in normal words. Something went wrong with the way the placenta was embedded, and that triggered this inflammatory cascade, and it, you know, the release of mediators from the placenta. We'll talk about that in a minute, because that actually is true. But nonetheless, this the way that the trophoblast would invade the spiral arteries would somehow jack up or mess up the uterine arteries and that led to placental hypoperfusion and then widespread vasoconstriction and then preeclampsia. So in other words, the placenta was the origin of the issue, right? In other words, it was the placenta's fault. The placenta was the villain. But new data and a lot of evolving data is now showing that the placenta, while still an important factor here in the development of preeclampsia, may actually simply be responding to something wrong in the maternal compartment. Yep, it may be the victim. In other words, there's a lot of data, and we're going to review this in part two as well, that there's actually defects in the maternal cardiovascular system. In other words, the mom is already programmed, she's imprinted for this endovascular dysfunction, and then you throw a pregnancy on top of that, and that just unmasks things. So that the placenta, as a response to hypoperfusion, not as the cause of hyperperfusion, then freaks out as well, and then helps further augment the development of preeclampsia. All right, did you all get that? So the initial thought, of course, was, ah, the placenta invades the spiral arteries and it's the placenta's fault. But it may be that the placenta is just trying to respond in a self-survival mode. And that further contributes to something that actually started in the maternal cardiovascular system. So in other words, there's growing evidence that uterine Underperfusion by the maternal compartment is actually the main driving factor here in the development of preeclampsia. Yep, uterine malperfusion may be a pre-pregnancy phenomenon 
caused by a dysfunctional maternal heart or dysfunctional endovascular system. And that's actually demonstrated by several studies that show a higher prevalence of preeclampsia as well as fetal growth restriction in women who have pre-existing congenital heart disease. Now, having said that and kind of having messed with you a little bit because it actually may be not the placenta's fault, but actually an adaptive response of the placenta to an already altered maternal cardiovascular compartment that causes preeclampsia. I want to address that a little bit more in part two of this Mythbusters mini-series. And I want to get back to our original focus, which is debunking some of the myths around the development of preeclampsia. So I've already set the stage, right? It looks like there may be a defect in the maternal cardiovascular system that's just pushed over the edge with pregnancy and therefore is the development of preeclampsia. So let's get into some of these myths because I know that you've heard things like this. Like, ah, preeclampsia is much more likely with a change in partner. In other words, it's a new partner and that increases her preeclampsia risk. But does it? And that was part of the social history that we took. And it's still part of good documentation, and you should ask. But we asked specifically to see if they had a new partner to see if they were at risk for preeclampsia. In other words, our social history went something like this. Hey, what kind of job do you do? Uh, do you smoke cigarettes? Do you do any kind of drugs that we need to know about? What about alcohol use? Um, how many lifetime partners have you had? And is this a new partner? Right? So again, that was part of the social history, and it's okay to ask that, but we were really looking for risk factors for development of preeclampsia. But does a change in partner, does a new sexual partner really raise the risk of preeclampsia? Is that a myth, or is it fact? Well, it's a myth. There are now several large and well-conducted epidemiological studies that contradict the previously held belief that new paternity increases the risk of preeclampsia. Well, I know I may have messed with you already because we all learned that a change in partner does increase preeclampsia risk. But let's get into the data that shows that it likely doesn't next. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A medical birth registry of Norway studied over 547,000 women who had registered two births, and it was the first to demonstrate that change of paternity for the second pregnancy was actually associated with a reduced rate of preeclampsia after controlling for the time since the first birth. Another population-based Scandinavian registry of over 760,000 women who had two or more births found that in an unadjusted analysis, a pregnancy involving a new partner was indeed associated with a higher risk of preeclampsia. But wait, there's more. After adjustment for the interbirth interval, the risk of preeclampsia was actually reduced. In other words, it may be that it's the interval between pregnancies that's the risk factor for preeclampsia, not the change in partner. 
A subsequent Norwegian cohort study of women with spontaneous or assisted reproductive conceptions, and we're talking about thousands of women, found that the prevalence of preeclampsia was explained by the interbirth interval and advanced maternal age, but it was unrelated to a change of partner. In other words, if a new partner is on the scene and they're pregnant again, remember that there's an interval change there. So women are, in general, a little older. And just that age difference, even if they're not advanced maternal age, may, again, stress a cardiovascular compartment leading to preeclampsia. So the increase in preeclampsia risk previously ascribed to changing paternity leading to this immunological theory of preeclampsia, that it's a, you know, a new sperm antigen and then therefore they're at risk for preeclampsia, that actually appears to be better explained by the fact that new paternity is simply a proxy marker for interpregnancy interval. So said another way and in very quick words, change in partner increased risk of preeclampsia Likely not, but it's likely the inner pregnancy interval that's at play there. All right, that was myth one, busted. Now, myth two, and that's that cohabitation and prolonged sperm exposure leads to a reduced rate of preeclampsia. In other words, it goes back to this immunological prior theory that if a woman was exposed to a new sperm antigen or a new paternal antigen, that caused an immunological response and that led to preeclampsia. But if the woman had a long previous exposure to that semen or paternal antigen, then they had a reduced rate of preeclampsia. Guys, when I was in residency, there was a lot of journals out there that actually looked at Oral sex, meaning the the female patient, of course, the the female uh, index case, the amount of taken in oral ejaculate as a reduction or as a way to reduce the relative risk for the development of preeclampsia. There were weird observational studies about that. Sorry, had to bring that up, but it's actually a myth. Yes, it had been proposed previously that sexual cohabitation protected against the development of preeclampsia by inducing desensitization of the maternal immune response to paternally derived fetal antigens. However, in a well-designed retrospective study, yeah, it was retrospective, but the study design was really good. It examined the outcomes of pregnancies of women who had donor insemination compared with women who conceived after in vitro fertilization with their own partner's sperm. Now, the prevalence of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy was actually not different between the two groups. So the authors concluded that insemination by the partner's sperm was not associated with a reduction of hypertensive disease, and neither was donor sperm associated with an increased incidence. That's a pretty good way to bust that myth. Now, the role of barrier contraception in preventing sperm exposure was also tested in a separate study of over 2,000 women who recorded preconception contraception and timing of their first sexual intercourse with the father of the pregnancy. The authors demonstrated that women who used barrier contraception before pregnancy were no more likely than women not using barrier contraception to develop preeclampsia. So they concluded that their findings did not support the immune maladaptation theory of preeclampsia. So, Cohabitation or long-time sperm exposure leads to decreased risk? That's a myth, and that's busted. All right, family, myth number three, 
ovum donation and the subsequent pregnancy that results from that is an independent risk for the development of preeclampsia. Is that a myth? Well, the increase in risk of preeclampsia in pregnancies conceived through IVF has been consistently explained by advanced maternal age and or multiple pregnancy. Again, and that's an unmasking of something likely already existing in the maternal cardiovascular system, except in the case of ovum donation. Pregnancies achieved by oocyte donation do seem to confer a two to threefold increase in the rate of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So, what's going on there? Well, recent meta regression analysis have shown that even after adjustment for maternal age, gravity, parity, and chronic hypertension, oocyte donation and pregnancy that follows that has been independently associated with a higher risk of hypertensive disorders. So it seems to be correct. There's something going on with oocyte donation leading to a significant increase in the risk of hypertension. And so the followers or the subscribers of this allogenic or immune response uh, to preeclampsia theory again say that, you see, this is a new oocyte. It's a whole new antigen response. So that proves it's immunological. No, there's also an alternative explanation. This alternative explanation for the association between ovum donation and preeclampsia is also evident if one considers that women who undergo ovum donation are typically affected by premature ovarian insufficiency, PCOS, or even possibly mosaic Turner syndrome. And all of these conditions are what? They're strongly associated with the development of metabolic syndrome or increased cardiovascular risk. So we're back again to something in the maternal, endovascular, and cardiovascular space. So it's therefore entirely plausible that pre-pregnancy asymptomatic cardiac dysfunction or metabolic derangement in these women that require ovum donation is the real risk there in the subsequent development of preeclampsia. So, ovum donation, does it increase the risk of preeclampsia? Well, while ovum donation and pregnancies that result from that do have a higher risk of preeclampsia, it's not likely the ovum donation. It's the reason why the patient needed ovum donation to begin with. There's something inherently wrong, of course, obviously with the woman's ovaries, which again goes back to the other domino that fell before the ovary stopped working. And that domino that fell before that is metabolic program or derangement, again, pointing to the fact that there's something already programmed or imprinted in the maternal endovascular space or the cardiovascular system that is simply unmasked by that extra burden of ovum donation. So ovum donation likely does not result in preeclampsia by itself. It, again, just unmasks something that was likely already present in the maternal cardiovascular system. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this part one up by busting the last myth and probably the most impactful, which is birth is the cure for preeclampsia. Is it? No, it's not. Well, I know I've said it and you've probably said it too. We've got to get this patient delivered because it's the cure for preeclampsia. Well, not so much. It has been a long-standing belief that the harmful maternal consequences of preeclampsia are completely reversible with termination of the pregnancy, in other words, delivery. 
However, there are now several studies and systematic reviews in pregnancies complicated by preeclampsia which have consistently demonstrated post-birth biventricular remodeling and diastolic dysfunction from as early as three months after birth, persisting up to several decades after that. These subclinical features of cardiac dysfunction are associated with increased risk of developing a range of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, including hypertension, cardiomyopathy, myocardial infarction, stroke, and even vascular dementia. So think about that. If a patient has real preeclampsia, especially if it's preterm preeclampsia and severe, they're at risk for vascular dementia. So, for example, women who have hypertensive disorders in pregnancy have as high as a 30% risk of post-pregnancy hypertension in the first decade after birth, with the highest risk of onset being in the first one to two years after birth. So that's a clinical pearl. There are 30% increased risk of having hypertension within the decade after delivery, but it's highest within the first two years. The long-term maternal cardiovascular risks following preeclampsia are greater than for smoking. And check this out. The American Heart Association has even included preeclampsia as one of the risk factors in the calculation score for future cardiovascular damage or risks. In other words, it has added preeclampsia in terms of the algorithm for the 10-year Framington cardiovascular risk score. Isn't that something? So preeclampsia is now recognized by the American Heart Association as an independent risk factor for long-term development of other cardiovascular morbidities. All right, there you have it. We have covered a soon-to-be-released publication from the Gray Journal, the American Journal of OBGYN, talking about the placenta. Is it a villain or is it a victim in the pathogenesis of preeclampsia? And we have dispelled some of the common misperceptions regarding the pathophysiology of preeclampsia. It's rough, and no, delivery isn't the cure. The effects can stick around long-term, up to a decade after birth. So we've got to change our attitude and change our mind about how we think about preeclampsia. In part two, we're going to address some of the new leading theories on the pathogenesis of preeclampsia. Yeah, trophoblastic invasion is one thing, but that's likely a secondary byproduct of the first issue, which is altered maternal cardiovascular compartment. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.